Welcome to the RacerX podcast. Each week, diving deep inside the sports of motocross and supercross to teach you things you might not have known but always wanted to know about your favorite sports. Jason Wygan here, your host, inside the spacious, plush, well-lit, and now soundproofed RacerX offices in Morgantown, West Virginia. This is episode two. We're covering the anatomy of the factory contract. Essentially, we're going to find out what it's like to be an agent, a rider, and a team manager and negotiate deals for the coming year. Big thanks to our guest. We'll have Jimmy Button, former Yamaha factory rider, Suzuki factory rider, and now an agent with the Wasserman Media Group, representing such uh, luminaries as Chad Reed. And we'll also have Andrew Short, current factory rider with the Honda Red Bull Racing Team, and we have our own racer expert in the house. That's David Pingree, who has basically been on all sides of this, both as a rider and now as a team manager for Lucas Oil Troy Lee Designs Honda. Ping, are you there? I'm here, Jason. Hello. All right, now this is good. You've actually got experience on all sides of this now on the factory deal, uh, what it's like to sign contracts with teams uh, as a racer and as a team manager. Uh, how complicated actually is this deal? I mean, is this like a thousand-page document that no racer who hasn't gone to like college for a law degree would even understand? How does this work? That, that's pretty much what they are, any major team anyway. I mean, there's, you know, basically you've got a cover page that goes over the the, the gist of it. You know, here's what we're going to pay you, here's what we expect of you, here's your bonuses. And then there's rider obligations and and sponsor obligations. And the sponsor obligations part goes into pages, just an avalanche of pages of legal jargon that, yeah, unless you've spent some time over at Harvard, you're probably <laughs> not going to understand much of it. You just, you know, you'll see something about complete release and uh, indemnity for death, dismemberment, and that, and uh, you just go, all right, sounds good, and sign here. Do I have a bike? Do I have a mechanic? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're going to pay for everything. Here's, I get some money. Good. Yes, I'm willing to die. Where do I sign? So really what it comes down to is it's kind of like good faith. Riders just figure and teams just figure, ah, you know, you do the right thing. You don't get into trouble. You get some results and we'll all be good and we won't even worry about this other stuff, even though you have signed your name to it. Well, the, you know, the, and the bigger the company, obviously, if you're a, if you're a small team like, I don't know, small team, whoever that would be. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe your contract is just a couple of pages of whatever. Mm-hmm. But a company like Kawasaki or Honda, you know, any of the major manufacturers, they've got so much legal jargon in there just covering them, you know, making sure you can't come back and sue them or anyone involved at Kawasaki. And um, there's actually quite a bit of, of uh, very specific wording uh-huh. in those contracts. Of course, uh, you know, a lot of it's just... Like it might as well be Chinese unless you're a lawyer, but um, they're very, very careful to, to make sure they're covered on all sides uh, in case you know there's a dispute with something or an injury or whatever. Is that uh, negotiable? Do people actually bow out and say, no, 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 that's not going to work. I'm only going to do 13 autograph signings, not 113. Uh, the legal side of it is uh, is not super flexible. I mean, right. those guys, uh, like I say, they've got to cover their. Um, they're going to make sure they're backside. They're not going to back down at all in any of that. Yeah. Right. Right. But there are some things that are definitely um, negotiable. Uh, payment. You know, if if maybe riders will often try to get paid at least a lump sum up front. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because a lot of contracts will read okay if you're injured after you know 60 or 90 days, your pay gets cut 
fifty percent until you start racing again, or something like that. You know, right, right. Um, that's just a good way for companies to protect. You know. The investment they're making, and the, the riders guy. want as much as they can at the one hundred percent rate. <laughs> Absolutely. So there we go. there's a lot of you know kind of t- pull and tug there on that end of it. Um, obviously, with bonuses and salary is the biggest thing that you just you go back and forth and back and forth. But um, the legal side of it is pretty much like a just a template. Right. So you're pretty much, as a racer, you pretty much know I'm not going to be able to sue them, and that's the way it is, and then we'll work on the other stuff. Yeah, so you know, it, it still happens. It, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day who, who brought up Willie Surratt. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the story with him at all? He was he was a Suzuki, factory Suzuki rider. I think, he won a Suzuki 125 support. Supercross title, actually, in like 87 or something like that. Yeah, yeah he, yep. he did, and I think there was a clause in there, I don't remember the specifics, but that he would, if he won the championship, he got... Resigned, you know, for the following season, and he won it, and they didn't resign him mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and he sued Suzuki and won. Wow! Uh, so he used uh, their own clause against them, actually. <laughs> and I don't know the specifics, but I mean, <laughs> right. it, it, it does happen. There definitely is lawsuits. Uh, I'm sure that helps your negotiation with your next team, though. <laughs> Once you have that dark cloud yeah. hanging over you. Well, I'm a champion, and uh, you know, I sued Suzuki and won a bunch of money, so I'm very good in court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would you could you be a troublemaker on the back of my pants right now? Man. Um, I'm going to bring an expert here. I'm going to put you on hold for a second. We're going to call Jimmy Button. And um, I don't know, have you had any negotiations with him? Is there any bad blood here between you and Jimmy? Or no, no, no. Jimmy and I go way back. We're both uh, uh, Arizona guys, you know, from our, our younger days. And I was working with him a little bit. We were talking about possibly signing Max Anstey this year. And he was... Uh, he represents Matt Lemoyne and a few other guys, so I, he and I spoke on a weekly basis all through November and December. All right, well, I'm glad to bring that holiday spirit back then. <laughs> Hang on one second. All right, Jimmy Button, are you there? I am here. Good day. All right, and we got Ping, and uh, Ping has already told me that uh, you guys have almost been through this process a little bit. Um, you guys are not enemies, but you have been on all sides of the desk, agents, team managers, uh, former racers, or contracts yourself. So, um, hey, I actually try to negotiate with Ping, and I, I was uh, unfortunately unsuccessful, actually. How hard is this? Is a hardball guy to deal with? What, Ping? Yeah. No, not really. I mean, you know, the thing that's, the thing that's funny about, uh, about it, for, not funny about it, but it's just interesting for me, because at this point, you, you, you know, when I first started doing this nine years ago, you know, I, w- I was doing it for the first time, so I was, you know, a little intimidated and scared, possibly. Even though uh-huh. some of the people I knew for a while, but now the people that I'm dealing with, I've known for so long, and now I've done so much dealings with with most of them. Yep. That it, it really isn't, you know, it, it just it, it's nearly like you're just talking to your friends about stuff at this point. Well, that's the first thing I want to ask. I mean, is it a lot easier to kind of call each other's bluff? Like, Ping, do you get to the point where there's guys you already know, and you're like, "Come on, I know better than that." <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can be very candid with Jimmy about, like, I had some issues with one of the riders who we were talking about, and, and uh, actually both of them. I would just straight up say, well, I've heard this about this guy, or, you know, what about this with this dude, man? I know this is a problem, or, um, you know, what about this? And I don't know, and I don't know if Jimmy's really sugarcoating it, trying to sell me or what, but, like, <laughs> if they're, you know, he's not gonna he's not going to just straight lie to me. I've, I've known him too long. I'll be like button come on yeah no i mean the thing is i mean here here's the deal i mean i think that uh, actually
actually, it's not just motocross because I don't only do stuff in motocross. I do stuff in other sports. Right. You know, and, you know, everything is small. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter really what sport it is. Every sporting community, whether it's motocross or it's MotoGP or it's IndyCar racing, you know, the things that we deal with or that I deal with is... uh, all these little communities are very small. They're very close-knit. And so really and truly, if you start to screw people and lie to people, I mean, you could, you can get away with it, but it's going to come back and it's going to bite you in the backside and, and it's going to come along and get you pretty quickly. So I don't really think, you know, negotiating as, as hard as you can is one thing, but when you start lying to people, I mean, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do you good. It's not going to do your clients good. And, uh, you know, it, it'll end up being you know your shortcoming with uh, with your career oh, and so, the careers of your clients. So it's, it's just not really worth it. So on this particular RacerX podcast, we are not going to get any crazy stories of somebody screwing someone over and and getting revenge in the in the you future. Know, and, doesn't and, really and the thing is, you know, the thing is with me is like you know I've I, I started racing, you know, when I was four years old. I, I started getting paid by Honda. I think when I was either seven or eight. So I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing this at, a, I mean, even though on the amateur side, I would say at a very high level. Yep. And like I know everybody in the sport. I can I can still walk into any semi that I want, you know, and be welcome. And you know, I'm not going to throw away, uh, you know, my reputation, you know, and my ethics that I have and have had for so long and been through everything that I've been through in this sport, you know, to to make an extra buck for one time because, again, it'll come back and bite your client and it'll come back and bite you. I mean, if, if you sell somebody a bad batch of goods, yep. you know, you might get away, you know, that you might get through the checkout line with it, <laughs> but they're going to get home and they're going to open the box up and be like, hmm, okay, Button just screwed me. We'll see what happens to his rider now because they'll get treated, I think, in, you know, not fairly. Right. And then it, it just wouldn't be good for me either from a, from a manager standpoint, you know, and I'm going to, there's going to be many riders that are going to come and go through, through the walls here. And I'm still going to be doing what I'm doing, so I got to keep my ethics and keep doing the best that I can, you know, on the on the straight and narrow. Now this plus, is interesting. Oh, go ahead, Payne. Yeah. Plus, yep. I know where Button lives, so if he screws me, <laughs> I'll show up at his house with a blowtorch and light his pad on fire. Just use that contract as like kindling. <laughs> Here's your clauses. Now, wait, you, Jimmy, you said you started getting paid at like eight years old. Uh, how was this game before agents got involved? Or if you're that young, even now, you might not have an agent. How the heck does this deal work then? How do people negotiate when they really have very little business experience? How did you do that back then? Well, I, I certainly didn't. I mean, I was I was sitting in the dirt still playing with a little motorcycle. All right. <laughs> or I was on my BMX bike, you know, uh, up until the time I went to the starting line. But um, and your parents do it, just like most of the kids, their parents do it until their parents give me a call or I give <laughs> their parents a call. How much experience do they have, though? Little to none. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, when I raced, I mean, you know, I was, 
you know, getting paid, okay, that's a loose term because actually what happened with me is I actually got bonus money before there was contingency. Okay. You know, before there was, you know, posted bonuses and everything. I mean, hell, posted bonuses didn't come out until I was, you know, until my, until my amateur career was basically over. Too bad. Uh, you know, so I was on a bonus program, and, yeah, I got a little bit. Uh, it wasn't really salary. It was more like travel money um, back then, so... You know, I don't think there was, you know, wasn't a lot of negotiating from my folks or anything like that, but I think everyone just tried to do the best that they can, which is the same as what happens today with these with these kids' parents. The only thing that I see that's different is the fact that, you know, there's some amateurs in the last, you know, let's say seven to eight years, something like that, that have made pretty pretty large sums of money uh, from a salary standpoint. And so a lot of the other parents, you know, they then go and think, oh, okay, well, my kid is somewhat close to that. Well, then we should make somewhat close to what I hear that they're somewhat making. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think that's part of the, the, the reason why a lot of, you know, this industry got a little bit out of control the way that it did. You know, because some of the money coming in for first-year pros or last-year amateurs was getting it, it, it was getting pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, and for me, you know, it, it really can do me any good because we don't charge, you know, even those contracts that I negotiated for my amateurs, mm-hmm. when they were amateurs with big salaries, we never took a commission on it because we don't commission amateurs. Ah, I you see. Know? So you'd rather, you know, not... It's definitely not play hardball there. And is that some advice that you give to the parents? Like, you know, you're just well, an amateur right now. Try to chill out a little bit. Well, I think, too, it's just about keeping perspective, you yep. know, and what reality is. And, um, you know, the whole thing about, you know, these, these kids that are maybe good riders, but they're not great riders, and their parents go and they mortgage and remortgage and remortgage and borrow and, you know, borrow, beg and everything else to, to do this for their kids. I mean, it, 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 you know, it saddens me because I see what the reality is that very, very few of those, for one, are going to make it. Number two, are going to even ever make enough money to, to even possibly help pay that back to their folks. Right. Um, you know, and it, it's just a downward spiral. It's, it's you know, it's, it's sad, actually. Now, uh, both of you guys, when you first got your your pro deals, ping. When was it? Was that the '95 year we talked about in the last show, or was that '94 when you? Yeah, I mean, yep. kind of, I had a Suzuki support deal through my amateur career, right. and and the first first two years I raced professionally, they would just give me bikes and parts. Um, I don't even think there was travel money involved in that. Was there a contract? involved There was a in contract. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yep. it was X number of bikes. This this much parts. You know, run through this dealership, but. Um, as far as a salary and everything else, a real contract, that was with Mitch in 1995, yeah. And I'm assuming there was no agent involved at that point, right, for you? No. So no. how did you do that? Did you hire a lawyer? Is that something that racers need to do with all that jargon? No, I mean, you know, and and it's, it's different with each guy. If you're a, you know... If you're the next greatest thing, you know, coming out of the amateur ranks, and you're right. going to command a lot of money your first year, mm-hmm. maybe it's worth having an attorney, having an agent, someone to make sure you're not getting hosed down. But for me, I was just stoked. I would have signed whatever Mitch put in front of me. Right. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of rides back then. You know, mm-hmm. early mid '90s, there just wasn't that many jobs available. So, hey, Ping, they'll still do it today with Mitch. 
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. So I, I was just happy to have the ride. It was, it, and Mitch was, you know, to his credit, he's very straightforward about um, what his offer is. You know, it's like this. Everybody's getting this. This is the deal. Either take it or leave it. I mean, that's kind of how he was. And I, I think Kawasaki pays some of their rider salaries now, so I don't think it's he, he's quite as um, hard line as he used to be. But I mean, even Ricky, first year, I think he made either twenty five or thirty grand. I mean, that was it. You know, who, who else can chew Ricky Carmichael down to a $30,000 contract? I don't think a, a lot of people are than Mitch. That's right. But I was just happy to sign something, and, and depending on where you're at, you know, I, I don't think an, an agent wasn't necessary for a $25,000 contract. I mean... Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, when these contracts come up, I mean, uh, what I was at, we asked Ping a little earlier on the show, I mean, what does this thing look like? I mean, is this thing a 100- or 200-page gigantic legal document that, that no rider can even pick his way through? No, I mean, I uh, I think there's some there's some OEMs that um, their contracts are much more difficult to get through than others. Yep. Um, uh, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say which ones those are. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but um, there are there's there is one in particular that I tend to find a bit ridiculous. Right. And uh, and it's very very long. But I mean, I would say the general contract between everybody. You know, it's somewhere in the mid twenties to, you know, maybe a thirty-seven, thirty-eight page contract somewhere in there. Now, obviously, the legal stuff is there, but what about the the brass tax, like uh, appearances, dealer signings? You know, can I live in Florida and you can ship your bikes to me? And you know, where can I have logos on my gear? Do I get my helmet space? I mean, is that a huge part of the negotiation process, or is that pretty much like, this is the deal? It's in the contract well, ticket. It, it really it. depends if you're if you're a lights guy or if you're a 450 guy. Right. You know what I mean? Because generally, I mean, as Pete can very much tell you, um, and I've not seen a Troy Lee contract because, again, me and Pete couldn't come to terms. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, generally the lights guys are owned head to toe mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, you know, and you might be allowed to do, you know, with some guys you might be allowed to do a sunglass deal maybe or a tennis shoe deal or or something like that. But for the most part, and most of the lights guys, you know, because most of the lights teams are, you know, they have their gear deals. They got energy drinks. They got boots. They got all this stuff. So you might occasionally find, you know, some space in there to do one or two little side deals. Really, generally not for a lot of money. Um, and, and they usually, you know, everything's pretty much called out. You know, they might say, yeah, well, you know, we'll give you a spot to, to do something with on your helmet. But generally with the light steel, you're not going to get anything on your gear that you could go out and sell. Um, now, when you get onto the 450 class, you know, that's when, you know, that's when it becomes uh, uh, quite a bit more work, actually, to negotiate because, you know, then you're negotiating a gear deal, a helmet deal, boot deal, goggle deal, uh, tennis shoes. Possibly you even get to do an energy drink, even if you're already on a Kawasaki or Honda that, or, or, or Suzuki that already have energy drinks, you can also go out and negotiate a, a separate individual personal endorsement agreement with those guys. So, you know, there, it just really depends on, on who the rider is, how much, uh, you know, how much slack you're going to get, you know, and how much rope they're going to give you. Um, but, 
you know, it, it, you could get very little. It just really depends on what on uh, on what the scenario is. Yeah, to, to give I, you an example, I, I, yeah. um, what our team does, and Troy, Troy based a lot of what he does on what Mitch Payton does. You know, those guys grew up being buddies, and uh, you know, Troy obviously looks up to Mitch and the way that he runs his program. And um, I think Mitch has been the same way forever. Is you get two stickers on your helmet, um, it can only take up you know. 10% of the space or something, and it can't be obviously anything that conflicts with the team. So our guys have Under Armour. Uh, both of them are sponsored by Under Armour, so they have a little logo on there. And I think Will is actually sponsored by the Metal Militia, so he's got a little Metal Militia sticker on there. And um, Cole has Real Water, you know, so he's got a little Real Water sticker. And um, That's it, though. It can't be... Um, you know, if it's it can't be too big, or we we have to peel it off. And if they they both have tried to sneak a third little sticker on there, you know, <laughs> Will's got some tattoo friend that does his tattoos, and he keeps throwing it on there, and I keep peeling it off. <laughs> so, but yeah, you get to the 450 guys, and then it's and 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 these sponsors like Under Armour and that, it's just product, and um, you know, there might be a little bit of a bonus here. I think the militia actually does pay Will a little wow. bit. Wow, um, it's not high dollar stuff like you would have like like target with dungy you know i'm sure uh, that's an extensive contract now uh what about like all this other stuff like you know uh autograph signings and behavior and even uh you know where you ride and test and train i mean ping on your team is that you know wills in texas sometimes sometimes in california is is that something that's stipulated in a contract or is that kind of you just know the guy's going to do the right thing um it's it's not in ours we do have behavior contracts performance clauses uh-huh where um, you know they have to obviously if they're you know it's, there's, a, there's a clause in there about alcohol and drugs and anything else and if it's if we feel like he's out of line we can terminate the contract at any time. Um, as far as li- you know living somewhere, the only thing that we really did uh, was with Ben instead of you know our, our contract state that we'll cover all your travel expenses and lodging and everything else. Right. Uh, but with Ben, he wanted to make his own flights because he's going to be in Florida. Uh huh. So we just said we'd pay him a set amount of money per round, and he books his own travel. So, I mean, that's really the only thing we did to adjust for that. Um, other than that, there, you know, everything else is just sort of assumed. I mean, it says we're going to provide with him with bikes, parts, and whatever he needs. So whether he's here or in Florida, I mean, we're, we're going to do that. So there's a, basically whatever he needs thrown in there. It's not 100 bikes and 30 clutch levers and 50 clutch baskets. It's pretty much you need it, we'll get it to you. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the thing, the thing too, is as, as a professional, you don't need five bikes. Mm-hmm. You, you, you truly don't because, you know, generally with the teams, um, you know, your bikes are getting maintained so much that generally you maybe need one or two bikes during the year, and then the team has your race bike and test bike. But, you know, as long as your mechanic or your practice bike mechanic is rotating stuff out, I mean, that, that becomes really a non-issue. I see. And uh, what is the deal like performance clauses? Is there a performance clause that tons of riders don't even hit and the team doesn't really call them out on it? I mean, you very rarely see guys for performance purposes let go well, partway through the year. Not, there's, I've, I've personally never seen a contract that says, hey, unless you're in the top ten every single weekend, you're in the top ten in points or top five or whatever it is. Right. Performance clauses aren't really like that. It's basically if you know if you're really just not putting in the effort, you're you're finding yourself in trouble all the time. I mean, it's more you know it's more something like that. It's never you know 
it's never a set number. That's that's for certain. I see. You, know, yeah, you don't see specifics on it. I mean, it seems like it's maybe more of a, an out uh, if there's other problems involved. You know, I mean, if, if a rider is trying, putting in the effort, just not getting the results, they're not going to fire him. But if he's being just a total moron and he's getting in trouble and... Andy, that's not getting results. You might that just might be a way they can say, "Well, we're letting you go because in your contract there's a performance clause." And, you know. uh, still, though, to let a guy go partway through the year, I mean, it very rarely happens. I mean, is that a huge obstacle? It's so rare that it happens. Well, I think. I mean, Jimmy, you, you jump in and tell me what you think. But I, I mean, I think at these at some point you you invested so much in a guy, mm-hmm. you, you know, the teams would rather just stick it out with him and try to turn him around then cut him and deal with the bad PR and the you know right. now having to find another rider and it's almost easier to just ride the year out and then let him go yeah it generally just doesn't happen and, and certainly it's not good I, I, I really don't see it being good on anybody's side yep um, no matter what the situation is, you know, if, if the team's not holding up their end of the deal or the rider's not holding up their end of the deal, the the backlash on it is going to come back and be negative. Right? And it's not just going to be negative on the side that was making the infractions. It actually turns out, I believe, to be negative on everyone's, you know, on everyone's side. Yeah. And so it just, you know, it just really doesn't paint a good picture, especially, you know, for, for a rider when you're trying to find them another the ride for the following year but going back to what you were talking about before with the whole autograph signings and yeah yeah and, and yep. stuff like that i mean it's you know all that stuff's pretty general i mean i think a lot of people maybe hear you know from the baseball side and basketball side and maybe even you know from the formula one side about guys like really being a stickler about oh well i'm only doing so many appearances and this and that and everything our guys you know the motocross guys really aren't required to do all that much per mm-hmm. se uh even even, in comparison, even even doing the autograph signings at the dealerships and stuff like that, like you know, on the weekends of the races, yeah, you don't even have those every single weekend, right? Um, you know, I I would think that you know from everything that I've seen, I think you know like Hill this year with Josh riding for the L and M team, I'm pretty certain he probably does more appearances than anybody because not only does he do the the Yamaha appearances, he also does the Sam Manuel appearances which are at the Boys and Girls Clubs and stuff like that, which aren't necessarily just like a ton of fans and you're sitting in an autograph line for two hours, you know, signing your name on posters. You know, that's interacting with kids. So I, I, I think, you know, I know that he enjoys doing that stuff. But, yep. you know, even those requests, I mean, you got to understand, it costs a lot of money to run a race team these days. And, you know, I think even... You know, a, ra- a decent race team running on the lowest budget that there is, you're still over a million bucks a year. You know, so you're burning seven figures even on a low end team mm-hmm. that is, you know, I'm talking about the lower of the high caliber teams. Yep. So, I mean, it's expensive, and I think everyone realizes that these days, and, and you got to put a good foot forward uh, to do a good job for your team because I mean, you want to have a job the following year, and you want to be able to race motorcycles for a living. And, you know, if, if you don't, you start to become that arrogant. <laughs> it's going to come back, and it's going to bite you. You know, and there's there's a lot of other kids that will, uh, that will take your job in a heartbeat that are probably, you know, just as capable. Yep. Um, how does the whole process start? Like, if you're looking for a rider, 
Um, do like Jimmy, for example, do they even talk to the rider, or do they go straight to you because oh, you're the agent, or or does a team manager literally walk up to the rider at Steel City or Vegas or whenever it's going to be and say, hey, we're thinking of having you on the team? How does the process usually go nowadays with with so many people involved? Well, I mean. To, to give you an example, I mean, for me, the process has already started for next year. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's the reason why I go to the races. You know, I go to the races and I walk over to the trucks and have a chat with the team managers or the team principals or whoever they end up being, whoever kind of decision-making people are, you know, and just have a chat with them, you know, seeing what their outlook is on, on what they're going to do for the following year, how's their deals coming around with the OEMs, what's going on there, you know, uh my rider X, Y, and Z, you know, we're looking for something, you know, what, what's your thoughts on them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, again, it's just a relationship thing that, that you're always, you know, I'm always out talking to people. I'm always trying to find out what's going on with everybody to see where everyone's going to end up, you know, this guy looks like he's going to go here, this guy looks like he's going to go there, et cetera, et cetera. And just keep that line of communication going. You know, and as things start to ramp up a little bit, you know, then it's more of a, you know, I'm not seeing them at the races. I'm sending them emails. I'm talking to them on the phone during the week, you know, and just going and going. And then you have the other scenarios where you have a, uh, you have someone that calls you and says, hey, we're very interested in so-and-so for, for next year. You know, when can we have a conversation about that? Yeah, that's that's a dialogue that goes both ways because yeah. as a manager, if there's a kid I'm really interested in, I, you know, I'll bump into him at a national and be like, hey, you know, man, so what's what's going on? You know, what what do you got going for next year? And you keep it casual, but yeah, you try to dig and find out what what he's thinking, where he's going, and who his agent is, and then maybe call him during the week. Yeah, so the rider just sometimes say, you know, he'll talk to you a little bit, but hey, you got to talk to my agent. Yeah, that's anyone that's um, bigger money is definitely kind of sending you to their agent. Right, and then Jimmy, how's it work on your end? I mean, are you? Okay, they told me this. Are you okay with that back and forth to your rider? Is that how it normally has to go then? Well, generally, I mean, I, I talk to not every single one of my guys, but I nearly talk to all my guys certainly every week, but some of them I talk to every single day. Wow. Uh, and, you know, just seeing where they're at, where they're at mentally. You know, I had a, I had, a, I had this exact conversation two days ago with one of my guys, like, okay, here's what's going on. Here's who's already interested. What's your thoughts? You know, do you like this brand? Do you like this team? Do you like this team manager? Do you like these other riders? It looks like they might be on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. And, again, it's just, it's just about communicating with your riders, communicating back to the industry and, um, just kind of sorting through what's going to be the best, you know, because as much as we're here to help them make money and bigger contracts and bigger, 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 you know, a big part of what we do is help them make the right decisions. You know, I, I think that I have, you know, I know in my career I did some pretty bonehead deals you know, acting like an idiot or not doing stuff properly or whatever, you know, when I was young, when I was 16, 17, 18, whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, and I learned from those things, you know, and and now I'm able to help my guys avoid those pitfalls. Well, uh, I was going to ask, you know, when the when the Yamaha deal came, or even, I guess, you were, you were Chaparral first and then became Factory Yamaha. Is that how it worked, Jimmy? Well, I was... For me, well, you're I started out. Point, right? I actually started my career at uh, as a privateer on a Honda after being an amateur on a Honda. Yep. 
and then I went and rode for Yamaha for yep. DGY for two years. And, and might I add, he was one of the only guys I've ever seen to break a handlebar off. Wow. Yes, yes that actually cost me a championship in 92. Oh, that was against Swingster, right? Yeah, that was killer. Yeah. What, what was that race? I remember there's a there's a, Atlanta. a video on Moto World or something, and you're sitting there with a with the handlebar in your hand. <laughs> yeah, like it was days. in Atlanta in the old Fulton County Stadium. <laughs> it was usually cold there, so maybe the parts were brittle. Yeah. So, anyways, you know, I rode there, and then I went to Factory Suzuki for a couple of years. had a, had a bunch of success there, and you know, after that, I ended up uh, unfortunately losing my ride at Suzuki, and I went to to Europe for a year. I rode the Grand Prix, rode for, for Honda over there, and then I came back and did the privateer Yamaha thing, and then I went to Chaparral for a couple of years in the factory Yamaha. Actually, that's right. So your first factory deal officially was with Suzuki, and then it was Yamaha Correct. a few years later. So uh, how much less sophisticated was it for you then? I mean, I'm assuming, did you have an agent at that point, or was it just, no, did I, you have I a lawyer? Actually, I never had an agent, because up until probably my last, my last three contracts i yeah. didn't make enough money did you even get a lawyer for it yeah 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 okay yeah well i mean not my my very first contract with suzuki um i got i i made two grand a month all in nice you know and i got my contract and you know took it home showed mom and dad and you know we went through it and <laughs> uh again it was it was one of those take it or leave it and you you got 24 hours to make a decision you know and, and i was and, and, I was and jimmy spinning. i mean don't, you I can was, agree with me or not here, but there wasn't agents back then anyway. No. You know, there wasn't a lot of trainers. Like, now everyone's got a trainer. Everyone's yeah. got a man friend. Everyone's got an agent. There wasn't any of that stuff back then. Even the guys like, uh, like I know Stanton had that guy like Dave Stevenson. Were they just more money advisors than contract negotiators? Like, just here's where to invest? Was that really all there was? Like, I knew a few well, guys threw names around, but... You know, Dave, Dave actually helped me on my European deal. Right. Um... And I would say that Dave was like the first agent that ever worked with me, right? Because uh, he was doing, he had a lot of contacts in Europe, so he was doing my my international races for me. Yep. You know, and you take a commission or whatever it was. Yep. And uh, you know, I lost my Suzuki ride, and we were in Europe, and you know, a, a the Honda team came up to Dave and said, "Hey, we're interested in Jimmy." And Dave came over to me at at, uh, at Bercy at the last night of Bercy and said, "Hey, these guys want to talk." So before we got on a flight the following morning, we went and had breakfast with these guys. And when we got back to America, you know, before email, yeah, you know, we had a fax and yep. we had a fax offer. We did everything via fax and Set that's, offer how, and I, smoke that's how my deal came together for Europe. Yeah. Uh, so it was a lot less sophisticated. So eventually you did get to the point where you had somebody helping you. And then eventually, like with your Yamaha deal, say in the late 90s, would you at least have a lawyer at that point? Uh, um, checking things actually, over. Actually, actually, my uh, my two my last two contracts with Factory Yamaha, I negotiated myself. Wow, was that experience for now? That was like a little on the job training. Yeah, it was a, it was it was a, it was kind of funny actually because I remember going into um, you know into this room at Yamaha and sitting down with Larry Griffiths and Keith. You know, and sitting there, and uh, it was funny because the contract was fine. It was my second year. It was, it was my second uh, deal with those guys, and everything was good. We'd already the money was good, the bonuses were good, the terms were good, and everything. But the one thing that I really wanted at the time was I wanted to wear Alpine Star boots, and that's when the team was sponsored by Fox. Huh. And so that was our big 
that was our big stumbling block. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I got my way. So. All right. And then you decided, you know, I think I might have some something in this agent <laughs> business. <laughs> Trust me, I would have rather never fallen down in San Diego and never did this job. Just kept on racing and making a whole bunch of money and putting it in the bank. <laughs> Exactly. There you go. Um, all right, we're gonna let uh, we're gonna let you go. That's a good half hour from there, Jimmy. I don't think we got in any trouble there, right? No, no, of course not. <laughs> uh, we'll let you go and get back to work, man. That's actually encouraging news, though, to hear that there is some negotiating for O eleven already going. Because I mean, yeah, I thought it was quiet. It's it's. No, it's is it, it better it, than last it year? No, it, uh, you know what? It's um, you know, I think a lot of things will still be late. Okay. Like they were, like they were last year. But I actually think that because this year there there are so many riders with their uh, contracts expiring. Yeah. That uh, they can't wait as long as they did. There was a lot of guys that were on multi year deals going into uh, 2010. Yep. But uh, for 2011, there, from my knowledge, there's only about two serious contracts that are uh, that are already set in stone. Yeah. That, Bre- that. Breed is a two year deal, right? Oh yeah. And I don't even know who else. And I believe Dungey. Aha. Well, that makes sense. I believe. Not not 100% sure. Like yeah. I said, it's, you know, a, a lot of stuff is always speculation, but I think he's probably on a, on a multi-year deal. And I would certainly expect that when, uh, you know, if he wraps his championship up, he's probably got an automatic, you know, clause in there as well. Right, right. Okay, so that's a lot of work for you guys, and there's a lot of chess pieces to move around. Absolutely. Yep. All right, Jimmy, Bye. thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. See you. See you, Ping. See you guys. All right. Ping, stay on the line, buddy. Stay on the line. I'm going to call in short. Yes, sir. All right, Andrew Short, do we got you? Yep. And how are you doing, Ping? You still there? I'm here. All right. Short, um, we are talking about the anatomy of a factory rod and the actual like business side of it. So uh, we're going to try to get you in as much trouble as we can here and have you tell proprietary team Honda Red Bull Racing <laughs> insider stuff. <laughs> okay. It's good when uh, it's good when your deal's up next year to do that. You want to throw out as much inside material that your bosses don't want as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they pretty much know everything. So. Oh, okay. All right, we're good. Um, Hi, Shorty. Hey, Ping. What's up? Here we go. Um, let's... Just interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's obvious. <laughs> um, how does the deal work uh, from your side? I mean, uh, you get handed this giant contract, and you say, "Man." I didn't go to law school. I don't even know what this means. Like, what happens when the contract actually comes your way? Is it confusing, or do you just hand it over to Fred Bramblett or whoever and a lawyer and say, forget about it? Yeah, I mean, there's so many elements involved, especially with a company like American Honda who has their own legal department. Um, I don't have the knowledge or... uh... You don't have a legal department of your own? No? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for me, I was with an agent when I rode for Motorworld, and uh, when Honda started talking to me, um, I was just in the, in the process of switching people, um, and I switched to OMS with Fred Bramlett. And uh, for me, you know, I needed somebody that, that's been there before, who's dealt with Honda, who knew how everything worked from um, there's different levels of management. And uh, who knew the process and who's seen the Honda contract before. And um, that's why I wanted to go to Honda. And uh, I was just so excited to, to have the opportunity and to know that they were interested and I could be a part of their program in the future, that I would assign basically anything. And uh, Fred, uh, you know, he had that wisdom from before. And so that's kind of what I went with them. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed a, a long relationship with him since 
and with Honda, but uh, it, it's a long, drawn-out process that um, the first time I started, it, it started around Minneapolis Supercross, which was like nine rounds in, and I don't think I signed it till uh, right before Mammoth, which is like June. So it was a long, a long process. I have to go through a lot of a lot of deaths at Honda uh, and just do a lot of people. But it, it, there's a lot to it, and you definitely need somebody like Fred um, who's dealt with it because Andrew Short corporation would uh, get walked all over. <laughs> uh, Ping wanted to touch on that actually about the timing of this whole deal. That's so weird. The stuff starts, like the fans I think on the outside would think, oh this guy's trying to get a ride, trying to get a ride, trying to get a ride. But in reality, two months or three months into the racing season, stuff has already begun. Like what you're doing in May is almost already too late. That's so crazy. Yeah, it changed though. You know, it used to be that way. And and now it's delayed. I, even my last contract was the latest I've ever signed with Honda, mm-hmm. and, and that didn't happen until like a week before Still City. And uh, you know, I, we started talking to them around May. Yep. And uh, they were checking out different avenues and, and looking at a different option, options for themselves. And I was a part of it, and uh, I was a part of one plan. But I, I'm sure they had many plans, and just see how it all all panned out. But it takes a, a lot a lot of time and. I think Honda, it's such a great company because they have so many resources, but on the backside of it, um, there's so many people involved that it takes a long time to get everything finished because it has to go to this guy's desk, get approved into the other guy's desk, and maybe he's on vacation for the week and it can't get signed until afterwards, you know, until he gets back, and then it goes to another guy's desk, and then if he says no, then it all starts back over. And uh, so it's not just like one guy saying, okay, we're going to sign him for for this amount. It has to go through um, like a budget committee and different people, you know. There's there's different programs and different people have to look at it. So I know uh, Honda being one of the bigger companies, I think it takes uh, quite a while to get a deal actually done. So we well, can't blame it. Go, go ahead, Ping. Sorry. Well, I was just yeah. going to say, you know, Honda's very specific, too, with their contracts. Exactly. You know, if you remember back when Jeremy rode for him, he got in a bunch of trouble for riding a... Right. A different brand of watercraft, right? Um, you know, they're they're sticklers about what you get seen on and anything that competes with the Honda brand. Is is your contract that way, Shorty? Where it's very specific and detailed? Yeah, it is. It's really similar. It's really long, um, and that's where like Fred comes involved. But when I do sign, it seems like you sign so many copies. It's kind of like signing a mortgage for the first time. You're like, are you serious? Is this many pages? And at some point, you think it's an April Fool's joke. On all this stuff, and it's kind of scary and intimidating. But I mean, you're riding for Factory Honda. You're surrounded around the greatest people on on the best bikes, and so uh, it's you're so happy you don't even. It's just part of it, you know. Now, how specific does it actually get, Shorty? Is it like you got to wear this hat every time, and if you don't have this jacket with this logo, if you, or is it like, hey, if you wear a, you know, a Renthal hat because they're a sponsor, or a Dunlap hat, they're a sponsor? I mean, is it that specific? What you wear every time, all the time? Is it crazy like that? Yeah, it's pretty specific. Really? I think it's there for a reason. Obviously, you know, yeah. with Honda, they want the wing next to the Honda. Uh, you know, spelled out in a certain font and you can't just have the wing and the wing has to go in the right way and, you know, you have to understand that all that branding is image, image for them and they spend so much money that it has to be right and yep. uh, 
So, I mean, it's spelled out, and it's definitely, uh, I mean, it kind of seems like it's overkill, but it has to be that way, and for the amount of money they spend, it would be stupid not to be uh, as specific as they are. Shorty, there is a lot of stuff in there that you kind of think, like, man, who thought of this, or, you know, but they've been doing it for so long, and they know all the ins and outs, and uh, it is really specific, like, what you can ride. You know, for us, like, being at the farm, we have to have Honda quads and Honda scooters and stuff like that. And uh, it's there for a reason. And especially even stuff like grooming, you know, like, you know, they have a thing in there where you have to look professional and act professional and um, be smart about stuff like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And, uh, but I mean, that's what you're paid paid to do and to represent them and, and the image that they want and, uh, that they think is best to sell bikes, ultimately. Now, did you have to put a... Are you actually had to brand your cattle with a Honda wing? Is that true or not? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Or the old school, like, HM, you know? like An HRC, yeah. HRC cattle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the process, like, takes that long. But what's funny is, I think on the outside, people would think, oh man, they haven't signed him yet, so there must be tension between, in your case, you and Kehoe, or or between Villapoto and Fisher, or whatever. But it's not really necessarily between those two individuals. It goes a lot higher on your end and on Honda's end, I guess. It's not uh, just Eric. You, what you just said is true, you know? Oh, really? I mean, and that's what's hard, because as a racer, you put so much passion, and it's your whole life, and you care so much about it. And when they say, ah, oh, you're not worth it, or, you know, maybe we're going to go this other way, it's kind of like, you know, getting dumped by a girlfriend or something. It hits you in the heart, because yeah. you care so much about it. And yep. uh, in the end, it's just business, and you have to understand that. But it's hard, because... Like I just said, you put your heart into it, and sometimes they say, you know, it just comes across and stings a little bit. And, you know, so, this, uh, and, it, and that part takes the fun out of racing sometimes. You lose focus on why you're racing. So you I think keep a healthy balance, and it's definitely sometimes cutthroat, but other times it's just waiting on somebody's desk as well. Uh, I think this is another great reason why you have agents, because it's really difficult to walk into a room with, you know, let's say a guy like Mitch Payton or Kehoe and all the Honda brass, and you have to tell them why you're worth it. You know, you have to prove your worth to them, and they're going to try to, like, go the other way and say, well, we don't want to pay you, you know, this much because here's why, you know, and they'll, they'll come back the other way on you. Well, you didn't do that good at this race, and what about this? It's really tough, you know. Um, you got to have a lot of, you got to have thick skin, I guess, because they're they're trying to negotiate down on you, and you're trying to talk yourself up. And uh, it's, I, I suppose, to do it yourself is, you know, my, my dad always made me do it. Uh, all my contracts with Mitch, and until seven, six or seven years into my career, I didn't even have an agent. My dad was like, "No, it's good for you to, you know, go in and negotiate it yourself. It'll it'll pay off down the road when you go to a job interview or something." And, and yeah. it's true, I've had to do the same things here at, at Troy. You know, I go in and they tell me how, you know, well, I screwed up this dealer show, and what about this, and what about that, and it's like, yeah, but, you know, I did this good, I did a good job here, you know. It's, but it's really tough when you put all your heart and passion into this sport, and you, it's everything to you, and they, you know, you got to go in, and they're trying to talk you down. Even though they might believe what you're saying, they're trying to pay you as little as they can pay you, really, you know, so... It's nice to just say, hey, you're my agent, you go in and deal with it, I'm going to go to the gym, you know. Yeah, and I think the advantage that the factories have over, if I went to Eric Kehoe and all the different management is, they know what every rider's worth, 
and they know the only market for James, Chad, Baba, Villapoto, uh, Dungy. You know, they they check. They know where everyone's getting, and the riders maybe don't. Um, you know, there's always a you have a good estimate of what they're making, but with an agent, they have other clientele that um, knows. You know, they're in the same market or whatever, and they know what's the going rate, and they know what's fair and what's not. And uh, sometimes for the riders, it's it's almost like a big no-no. You're not supposed to talk about your deal, the factories like that. And obviously, for a reason, they can use that to their advantage. But I think that's where an agent comes into play because I think Fred knows what I'm worth, and uh, he can com- compare me to uh, – he's had Langston in the past, uh, Ferry in the past, and those are people I've raced against. and. What they were getting and, and about where I should be and if it's not a fair price then he can say something and he can validate it where if I just go to Honda and say hey I'm worth this amount of money I have no way of proving it or, or knowing if I'm off mark or not either so it's just kind of weird I understand what you guys are kind of saying it'd be crazy on like a Wednesday afternoon for the team to say you're not worth the money and then Saturday afternoon they're trying to pump you up and give you some confidence like that's a bad combination yeah <laughs> so you need to have different people I guess involved because yeah. if you're saying deals get done in April you know they still need you to perform for the next five or six months even if you're not coming back next year or not so that's got to be tough to separate those things um, mm, yeah or is it not is it not hard to separate I would think it would be yeah, I mean, in, in the end, if I'm not staying with Honda, uh, I still have to sell myself, and I'm still going to be out there racing and give it my best no matter what, but it's going to end up for whoever my employer is next year. They know I'm going to ride hard and fulfill my contract, and it shows what kind of character you really have. And so I think that um, everybody has the same goal once you get to the starting line, but sometimes, uh, you know, at the end of the season, you might you might part ways, but it, it'd be it's in both your interests to give it everything you have till the end I think ah uh, that that's that does make sense so you might not be happy the rider may not be happy about it but you know better than actually voice displeasure yeah, yeah that makes sense um, when you line up on the gate you have to put all that in a box yep. and everything has to disappear and you have to ride that motorcycle as hard as you can and the best you can no matter what's going on you know that's what you're paid to do and um, you know you're cheating yourself and the people that employ you if you're not shorty what kind of like crazy stuff winds up being in there i mean is it like a deal where they say well you could do 150 autograph sessions now it'll probably only be 15 or 20 i mean is there like crazy stuff where you're like well i'm probably not gonna have to do it so you just go for it or where you will no rider put themselves in that position where you're like no if you say 150 and i can only do 50 i'm not doing 150 what happens there yeah, no, they don't put anything unrealistic. They know that they've done them for so long. So but it is based time, on what, what usually you, happens. I mean, you are required to do that stuff. Yep. And uh, some, some weeks you do have an autograph signing or a dealer signing. Other weekends you don't. But, uh, I mean, they have little stuff in there where if you're late or you don't show up, then you get fined. And, you uh-huh. know, I, get, I think they'd enforce it if you're just being stupid but they understand like if your flight gets canceled or something like that but it's like any other business on, on that part you know I mean they think there's some stupid stuff that they have to put in there because people have abused it in the past and, and they're not going to enforce it unless you're being stupid you know and what about performance stuff like let's say for some crazy reason you just went slow this year and didn't make main events like five weeks in a row is that is there something like that in there? Like when people say, "Oh, there's performance clauses." Is it really a performance results clause, or does it not work like that? Yeah, um, I think they can. I think they can. 
pretty much fire you, but you have to be really screwing up and not giving it your best effort. And right. Again, just being stupid. Yeah. But, um, and stuff like injury clauses, I think, uh, you know, sometimes they can ask for uh, a doctor to make sure you're really, really injured. But again, that's just, they have to put that stuff in there because people have abused it in the past. If you're doing your job, then uh, then you're, you're good. And um, but they do have stuff like that in there um, for a reason, and, and I think they've learned from riders in the past that have been a little stupid about it. Another thing I want to ask, now you live in, in Texas part of the time. Um, is, is that part of the negotiation uh, as well? Like, hey, I'm going to need a little extra help because you're going to need to ship some bikes here, and I'm only going to be in California sometimes. How does that part of your deal work when you're not always in California? Um, it's not spelled out in your contract. No. But uh, it is, I mean, it's, it's a factor that um, comes into play. It's not so much the, the, the price of shipping everything, which, which is pretty tremendous, the way Honda does it. They build big crates and they send everything. I mean, if I have a blown fork seal and I call by 5 o'clock p.m., I'll have one by 10 a.m. the next day. They'll overnight it to me. Wow. Um, so I can ride. Yep. And, and that costs a lot of money. Same thing. I mean, they do a motor or whatever. Yep. And uh, But the big thing, I think, for them is testing and, and you know, Honda, it's hard for them to justify spending as much money as they do on racing and not have a reason for it. And it's basically R&D at the highest uh, level for them, and it's part of their um, history is racing and pushing the limits, and that, that includes testing. And to test, you basically need to be in California, and it's uh, something that comes up every year. Eric wants to make sure that I'm going to be in California in the winter, and if we do have uh, some issues at the racetrack that um, they'd like to work on with me, um, I need to fly to California, and no questions asked. It's uh, it's not spelled out in my contract, but I think they have to like notify me within a certain day period, like seven days or fourteen days or whatever. But for me, it's like they call me, I'm going. You know, like I don't yeah. care. I want to do everything I can right. to get there. But uh, I think the testing is the more important thing. It's not so much like you have to be here. You know, just to ride and right. and doing all that. Yep. Is Shorty in your contract? Do they cover those expenses, or is it like, okay, we're testing this day, be here, and it's on you? Um, I, I think uh, I think it depends on the situation, whether I'm notified or, or not, like that. Mm-hmm. And typically, yeah, they'll pay, but um, we, they try to figure it out. So. You know, you kill two birds and one stone. You're going out to Vegas, so you'll come out a week early and start outdoor testing. You know, so you're already going anyway for the race. You know, but I think they pay for it for the most part, um, unless it's something you want, yep. you know, to do to go out there. So yeah. I, what about your travel to the gray, races think, and all that? They, they I'm take, not too sure on it. They take care of the um, travel to the races and all that type of stuff? Or is that up to you? Yeah, I think everybody on Honda has a different program on per diem and huh. travel. And I know mine, I have to make it a certain distance, you know, in the future, a certain time period, like three or four weeks in advance and coach and just little things like that where they spell it out. So and, they pay, uh, but you can't just book yourself first class and book it the day before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you send your expense report in, Kehoe would just laugh at you and say, good luck, buddy, you know. Yeah, I um, see. So, I mean, yeah, there's stuff like that, and I know it costs a lot to send 30 people to the races and two trucks like Honda does. I mean, Ping would be better. You know, he could tell you the expenses, but oh yeah, it's crazy how, how much it costs. But they have it all written in there. Um, 
you know, some people I know just get a set fee. I'm not on that program. Some people just get like 1500 bucks a weekend, and however they choose to spend it is how they spend it, um, whether and it covers hotel, airport, like the flying and whatever, you know. So I think different people are on different programs, and every team's a little different. And I think that goes with, like, mechanics and everybody from, from what I've learned. Everybody has a different program on how expenses work. Same thing with, that's what you're saying kind of with your team a little bit, paying it depends on your situation and where yeah, you're well, living and stuff. Yeah, you know, typically our, we've got a gal here that will book all our flights together, mechanics, yep. riders, everybody, so that we can, you know, split it into two rental cars and share rides around. Uh, but like with Ben, because he'll be in Florida, it was different. And he he's doing like, like Andrew said, he's getting a set amount per weekend. And he books his own flight, hotel, rental car. We just tell him where we're staying. But, and maybe we would book his room, but it's on him to pay for it when he gets there, you know? Right. Shorty, you ever you ever killed two birds with one stone on your end? Like, you think, oh, I want to take Jackie and Emma out to Disneyland on Saturday. So you call Eric and go, hey, any way I can test something on Friday? You know, like, <laughs> no, I've never done it. Actually, after Red Bud, I stayed up there for my grandpa's uh, 80th birthday, but, yeah. Oh, you cheater. Yeah, I stayed for a day extra, you know. I'm telling Eric. So, right. I mean, little stuff like that, but no, I didn't ever go to, like, Disney World or anything like that. I should no. try it. It's fun. Teacups. <laughs> Matterhorn. <laughs> Teacups. Um, yeah. What about, um, what about insurance? This is something that Ping had mentioned. Um, you know, I work full-time for AceRx, so they give me health insurance. Um, although yep. the government, I guess, will soon be doing that, whether I need it or not. But... The point is, as a you're not really an employee like that. Um, so you go out and buy your own insurance, and I would think for what you're doing, that'd be really expensive. Yeah, I'm an independent contractor from Honda, so I'm not an employee, and I don't think very many people are, um, and for reasons just like what you said. And I have disability insurance. Yep. Um, just in case something got hurt, I have regular health insurance, and um, just. All kind. I have life insurance. I mean, it's it's part of it just to be responsible with your family and at, at the position that I'm in right now, where I'm kind of the sole income of the house. If something happens, I need to be able to support my family, and that's in there. And I believe uh, some of the factories they get insurance on us for our salaries. Uh, I'm not too in the ask an agent about that. Yeah. But I believe they can insure our salaries in case we get hurt. To uh, you know, recover themselves over that. Ping, do you know anything about that? Yeah, we've never done salaries. Um, I mean, it, you know, Lloyd's of London, will, they're just a bunch of gambling alcoholics over there. They'll, they'll <laughs> yeah, insure sure anything. anything. It's like, you know, these guys just want to be at a blackjack table in Vegas. So <laughs> you could insure literally anything. We, we actually did that with Ben for his bonuses, his race bonuses. We uh, insured podium finishes for the, you know, for the whole summer. And, you know, you pay this amount up front, and you're basically betting that he'll make more money than you're paying in, and they're betting that he won't. So they'll do it with anything. Yeah, you can totally do that. But, but Shorty, like your health insurance, your life insurance, your, your disability, those are all policies you went and got. I mean, this is – Yeah. A lot of people think, well, man, why – disability is the big one, you know. Yeah. Yeah, why, well, people really people will say, why didn't this guy go get insurance? But or why wasn't he covered through Honda's policy? You know, because they're independent contractors. There is no insurance. We have a clause in our contracts, and I mean, pretty much every contract I ever had read the same way, uh, where it says you must get and maintain your own health insurance throughout the term of this contract. 
and why would they why would they care why would they I know they're not going to give it's, it to you, but why do they want to make sure you do have it? It's just a legal issue again. I mean, they don't want they don't want the lawsuit. Well, you know, we're we're road for your team, and you know, you should be paying our doctor bills. I see. Um, Which, if you end up with five hundred thousand dollars worth of surgery, the chances of you trying to go back to them are probably bigger. So, if yeah. you have insurance, it might not be such an issue. Well, look at a guy like Christian Craig. I mean, what is that? Oh, what I can't is that imagine. all that procedure cost? I mean, I can't it's imagine. huge. Yeah. Right, um, or or just a just a broken ankle, but you can get back from those in a couple of weeks, right, Shorty? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What is the status, by the way? Uh, I know this is uh, you. You've been riding now, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been riding. I feel good. Just got done doing twenty laps, and I think Houston. All right, uh, you, twenty laps on the Supercross gotta... track. You're already there. Yeah, I mean, my first day I did 20 laps, but wow. now it's just picking up the speed, you know. It's like, to run with those guys, it's going to be gnarly just to hop in. I don't think I'm ever going to be ready, um, but I need to get a gauge and just start somewhere. So Houston's going to be it for me. All right. But I've been feeling good. been riding with some guys down here and excited to get going again. All right. Well, we'll let you get back to it, although you've actually got, uh, what, some relatives coming in for Easter, right? Yeah, I'm pumped. Like normally down here in Texas, I'm all by myself riding. But Baggett's been down here, Hunter Hewitt, and then uh, my family's coming. Which is, my sister is married to Ryan Morris, so he's coming. Nice. We're gonna hang out for the weekend, and I'm gonna take a mountain bike in or do something fun. So I'm excited. All right. Hey, thanks for uh, being on the Race Rex podcast. And uh, man, Bramlett's probably gonna call me as soon as this is over and say you gave out too much. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope, uh, yeah. You hope hope he calls me uh, and not you. (laughs) Yeah, I hope I didn't ruffle any feathers, but, you know, it's cool that I think it's awesome, the the things you guys are covering and showing the fans uh, the different side of the sport. You know, obviously we don't line up and just do 20 laps and go home and sit on the couch all week, and there's a lot of different elements and stuff that goes into it, so it's cool. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, You always always get it. See you, Shorty. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. All right. But, and now it's just uh, down to the two of us. Um, you had mentioned a couple things that you wanted to uh, cover there, Ping, which included the timing of this whole deal. And, and are you already kind of working on, on next year, too? Yeah, you know, well, it's it, it's just funny how things uh, change. You know, when there's riders that are available, um, <laughs> you got to snap them up when you can, you know. And, and, again, that's a gamble. Like, you know, I mentioned you, Trey Kennard. Yeah. Um, if I was there at Kehoe, and, and, and I don't know what's going on over there, but... Man, I would sure think he's talking to Trey pretty hard right now. And well, I didn't want to bring that up to Shorty, but yeah, he probably. Is. Well, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so right. But. Yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to ask him about his deal for next year, but yeah, Kennard just became hot property at the right time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, he he's just been killing it, and uh, and he's a, a great kid and hard worker. I mean, he's everything you look for in a rider. So, right. um, you can't wait on a kid like that. You know, his his deal's up. He's got to move up, and you know. Coster's looking at him, and Fish, you know, all those guys are going, huh, mm-hmm. wow, you know, so I would guess they're moving on Trey quick, and and even, uh, you know, myself, I've kind of got a personal stake in this, too, because I'm working this week on Cole Seeley and Wells Hahn contracts, and we're, we're trying to get those two locked in, and, uh, you know, may or may not happen, you know, those guys might want to wait and say, nah, you know, I, I feel good about how I'm going to do this summer, I'm going to stick it out and wait, you know, and I, hopefully that won't happen, we'd love to have both of those guys back here, and and um, continue forward because I think next year they're going to be looking, you know, both of them ready to win races. So, uh, so you know, it is interesting when you think about that timing then because it's like the riders are almost gambling with themselves. Like if you put in 
like like Colin Will did, you put in five or six good races at the beginning of the year, you can almost put that in the bank and try to get a ride just on that, just from what you did in January and February. Or you can think, well, I'm building. I might even get better. So it's almost a little bit of a gamble there. It, it really is. And, and with these two in particular, neither one of them have ever done really well at the Nationals. You know, Cole's only done two races before, but he, he didn't impress. Right. And Will's kind of already gotten the... Um, reputation as being just kind of a supercross guy. Yep. But he's determined to break that. And I mean, we I've been out riding with these two and they're flying. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, my recommendation to Troy was, hey, let's, let's get these guys signed like now. You know, I mean, <laughs> and there's something to be said for those guys just not having to worry about, okay, I, you know, I've got to do good this week because I don't have a contract yet. You know, there's, there is something to be said for having something already done for next year. You know, you can just focus on your job and um, not have to sweat it. Uh, of course, if they go out and kill it this summer and they're getting podiums outdoors, their stock keeps going up. You know, so maybe they could get another 20 or 50 grand on their salary if they go out and do that. But maybe they don't. Maybe they get hurt. Maybe they have a bad summer. Now their their stock has dropped. So it's a funny game. You got that timing of it. It's like, okay, you want to do something now? We'll pay you this much. You know, do you want to wait or what do you want to do? So and that's uh, where a lot of the negotiating comes in. And I'm actually impressed because it seemed like it was ghost town last year as far as contract stuff went. So stuff is happening in April? Well, and, you know, typically, yes. Typically, it's it's early spring. Guys are teams already have their budgets, and they're starting to look and get you know, positioned for the following year. But um, last year was really different with the economy doing what it did. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone, uh, I think there was one team actually that had, I think it was star that had their contract um, rolling over to the, to 2010 with Yamaha. So they could go ahead and, you know, get the ball rolling and get riders signed and get done. But everyone else was waiting on manufacturer budgets and they didn't have them till I mean, as everybody saw, really, really late. It was six months later than usual. So, you know, there was kind of uh, that dynamic that went into it last year. And, and, and who knows, this year it sounds like maybe it's better, but I think it's still going to be delayed a little bit. Right, but, I mean, was anything going on in April? Was your team negotiating with the riders or thinking of negotiating in April 2009 where you are thinking that in April 2010? Were you thinking about this at this time last year um, or are you further ahead? No, we weren't. I mean, we, were, we were really late. Right. We were really, really late getting our budget. So, you know, and our key thing isn't just Honda. We feel pretty comfortable with where we're at with them, but um, with Lucas Oil, you know, last yep. year, we, last summer, we were just trying each other on and seeing how that was going to work. Right. And it seems like now that relationship's sort of growing, and, and uh, you know, we're looking at putting something together long term with them, and uh, we're really, really happy with those guys. They're happy with us. So, once we get comfortable that that money's going to be there, it makes it easier for us to to start taking steps to you know lock in plans for 2011. You know you'd hate to sign these guys and be on the hook for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden you you know big sponsor pulls out and you're going uh. All right. But see me asking is that you're like the Fed right now. Like, are you going to raise interest rates or not? Are you telling us that the industry is turning around or not? But you, you're not quite going there, not quite able to yeah, go there yet. It's tough. It's a tough call, you know. And that's what all these all these teams and all the riders are kind of have to deal with. Um, it's it's a gamble. It's like this gambling game of ever who who wants to, you know, put their cards in now or, or you know what are you going to do? 
Uh, finally, I mean, are there any actual stories that go around of like crazy things guys had in their contract? Like, man, I heard with this dude, they gotta, you know, I know like Brooks always tells me that he's making sure Hill stays in California, but I don't know. It, he hasn't gotten any trouble for it because he stayed in California and Hill's definitely stepped up this year. But I mean, are there, do you hear rumors about like, dude, these two guys on the same team are just regular, but this third guy, they got weird stuff in there for him. Does that happen? I don't think it, it typically does. No. Like I said, there's some some real broad general things in there, like the performance clause, like the the drug and alcohol clause. You know, like like Shorty was talking about your your appearance or presentation type of thing, where yep. you know you can't have. Some of them might say you you got to be, and I, and they'll word it again, where you have to go to Columbia Law to figure it all out. But it's right. like you basically have to have short hair, you look nice, you know, button up shirt. The yep. whole nine. Yep. But it, 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 they're, they're broad clauses so that, again, in, the, in a courtroom, if it got to that, um, they could say, well, here's why we let you go or we reprimanded you or whatever. Yeah. Because you weren't adhering to this. So a lot, a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo, but I don't think it gets weird specific like that. I think um, those are conversations they'll have in an office room before the contract signed, like, you know, hey, if you're, you know... Uh, out doing this or that or whatever, if you, or you've done this or that, and if you do that, you're done. Like you know, right. I think that stuff's just spelled out in a handshake type of deal in the office before you even sign the agreement. It's like your boss coming to you and saying, "We really need you to be getting here at nine, not nine thirty. Yeah. They don't make you sign a paper, but the boss did just tell you, so yeah. you should know better. It's like you know when they said when I got sat down and they said, "Hey, Ping," when we said Casual Friday, we didn't mean a thong and a tank top. <laughs> I mean, I had to deal with that. I didn't know. <laughs> I thought that was all five days. <laughs> well, I'm not wearing a suit. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Sticklers. Yeah. And the last thing I want to ask, and unfortunately, you've had to deal with this the last two years. What happens when you bring in replacement riders? Where does that money come from? Uh, does it come out of what the original guy made? Like, how does that does that work? No, not not for us. You know, I mean, typically, like when we've had guys hurt. We still paid them. Like Jimmy Albertson last year did his navicular right before the first round. And we still, we continued to pay him, you know. Christian Craig, we continue to pay him through this So you're year. paying Christian Craig right now? Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, um, basically, it's not like you can create more money. Your budget's already set. So yeah. what you have to do is find a guy who's so desperate, he's just <laughs> willing to ride for bonuses. You know, what, so whatever, and you're willing to, to transfer over the same bonuses you were paying that guy because he's not out earning them. Sure. But you can't, you can't just create more salary. So you just go, look, dude, we'll pay all your expenses. We'll give you this bonus program, put you on, you know, great bikes with a great team behind you. And, and, and you just have to find someone who's <laughs> desperate enough to take it, you know? <laughs> I see what you mean. Because Craig, you would have needed a bike, a mechanic, and bonuses for Craig anyway, and travel money. Exactly. So you just that money's already over. Spent. Yeah, so now you just spend it on coal. Um, and Craig keeps his salary, and coal races or bonuses. That's right. And and so now, you know, what we're doing with Cole is he didn't even have a deal for the summer. His super, his deal was Supercross only because, you know, we wanted to – we didn't want to commit to more than um, than we could or should. So now we're trying to lock him in for this summer and for 2011. I mean, we just – he's exceeded what even we expected out of him. So um, trying to lock him in. But, you know, last year it was the same thing with Bloss. He had nothing. You know, he was maybe not even going to race. So he was willing to just, yeah, give me a shot. I'll, you know, that's fine. Bonuses only is fine. All right. And then we ended up actually 
um, we you know, he was kind of struggling financially there at, at one point when there was a lag between those opening races and when Honda got the bonus money turned around. So we we were kind of throwing him a little bit of money just to keep him alive out here, but um, it wasn't budgeted for. So you know, you obviously can't go too nuts with that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, Ping, uh, that's it. We're talking about factory contracts and. Um I hope I didn't get anybody in trouble, and um, your expertise is certainly appreciated, man. You, I'm, I'm just one of those guys who, on the message boards, they say, I'd like to see you do it. <laughs> You're one of the guys who actually did, so I appreciate it. <laughs> you bet. You bet, as always. All right, man. We'll catch you next week, Ping. See you, Weech. All right, Ping. That's going to do it for our RacerX podcast, The Anatomy of the Factory Contract. Keep sending me emails at jasonw at racerxonline.com. I know I haven't had a chance to answer them all, but it at least allows me to tell my bosses, see all the unanswered emails I have? I don't have time to write Redux or help out with Racerhead or that magazine that we do. So keep emailing me. And thanks for listening to the Racer X Podcast.